welcome to our hen house. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. And on this week's show, Marianne will be interviewing someone who may well be the most important person in the animal rights movement whom you have never heard of. I love this episode. Gamunu de Silva, more or less invented undercover investigations and has been carrying them out for a variety of organizations and in a variety of hellholes, really, for years. Most recently, he has been operating under his own company, Tracks Investigations, and the work they're doing, it just could not possibly be more important. I'm so looking forward to hearing this chat. Oh, I love this. And I love this guy. I love this interview. And, you know, I'm one of those people who never heard of him. I mean, he's British. So it, it's not like he's, I mean, he's done investigations all over the world, but he's centered in the UK. And, and so that might be something of an excuse for why I've never heard of him. But I think he's just not, just hasn't promoted himself. And I'm so thankful to hear his stories. They're amazing. On the Flock bonus segment for this week, I will be continuing my conversation with Gem. And if you are a Flock member, you will get a link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this podcast episode goes up. Or you can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the Flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. Also, if you're a Flock member, please join us for our Flock First Friday Zoom calls, which are once a month on the first Friday of the month at 4 p.m. Eastern where we have some very inspiring guests and some really cool conversations about activism and about life. So if you're a member of The Flock, check out The Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. You can also set up one-on-one conversations with me also by emailing info at ourhenhouse.org. Oh, and if you heard a recent podcast guest that you would like to be on a Flock Friday Zoom call with us, then let us know because we're always taking suggestions. We'll give it a whirl. You were not able to make it to the most recent Flock group for just the saddest reasons in the world. And I know you don't want to dwell on this, but but I think you should mention uh, that you had a terrible loss this week. Yeah, I unfortunately, one of our dogs, Lucy, we had to say goodbye to her. She was old. So it was definitely the time when we're used to sort of maybe wrapping our heads around the end, but it is always very sad. And it her decline came on suddenly, even though she was old. And, you know, in a way that's a gift because it's not like she was suffering for a very long time, but it was extremely dramatic when she was. And we miss her terribly. Honestly, the first animal who I had to say goodbye to, who I lived with, the other animals, for whatever reason, who I've said goodbye to, I, for a variety of reasons, wasn't living with them anymore. And so this was a very significant loss for us. And yeah, I appreciate the love that I felt. I felt it was on the same day that Flock Friday was. So I, I did pop on at the end real quick to just say hi to everyone. But I still feel really bad about not being able to go. But I don't think you would have wanted me there because it was a very, very sad, hard, dramatic day. So I appreciate all the love. And, you know, we have we have a lot of animals still. We have two two chihuahuas and, and our little cat. So there's still a lot of animal cuddles, maybe some extra animal cuddles happening around around here. And it's good to be back in the swing of things. It's weird, you know, but good. And we, you and I tried to record the beginning of this segment like eight times and we just kept laughing, which was nice. You know, it's good to laugh. We couldn't record it. 
It's good to laugh, but I do find that sometimes, you know, laugh, laughter is, has a lot of different functions and sometimes it is just a release of tension. It's not like I'm feeling in a particular funny mood today. I just, you know, you just get that thing and you can't stop laughing. Yes, it happens to us occasionally. And I think today it really is just a kind of release of tension. Yeah, so hopefully we sure. will start again, unless you want us to laugh, in which case we could probably spend this entire time. Probably. Laughing. Yeah, I have been I've been definitely wanting to disconnect to my emotions more than connect with them. But, you know, Netflix is good for that. I just finished uh, totally binge watching this show called Watch Out for the Big Girls, which is a reality show of uh, about Lizzo finding her backup dancers. And of course, I love Lizzo. And I, 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 the show was just a perfect way of getting my mind off of things. And it was nice that obviously Lizzo is vegan. And there was this really cool moment where there was uh, like a buffet that she was going to join the backup singers. And she was like, oh, I can't eat that because that's not vegan. That looks like chicken. I'll skip it. And then like a producer comes out. It's like, no, it's all vegan. She's like, oh, it's vegan chicken. I'll eat it then. And so I was like, I just had this moment of like, Lizzo's one of us. I just adore her so much. So, I, And I think sometimes those like just random little remarks mm-hmm. kind of get beyond people's defenses and, and actually can have more of an impact than, you know, giving a speech about it or yeah. talking about it at length. So that's great. Like random little vegan mentions are, yeah. are terrific. And, it, you know, I watch a lot of old TV too. And, you know, you sometimes you see old vegan mentions and, and you can track that they've gotten... It used to be that veganism, if it was mentioned at all, was kind of, you know, either weird or it was a negative or it, it, it indicated that somebody was a pain in the ass. And, and now... That's really shifted. So, mm-hmm. yeah, good for Lizzo. I'll have to watch that show. Yeah, you should. I know you don't love the uh, the reality shows that much. I don't like reality, so <laughs> so why would I like reality shows? And unfortunately, the one drama queen on it was named Jasmine. I was like, really? Okay, thank you. Anyway, uh, so I did have this one little thing that happened. So on Friday, I was very much in like not responding to anyone. In fact, I just want to say thank you to everyone who has sent me love. I have gotten everything. I just, I can't really reply to them as I'm sure you can understand. But there was one thing that had nothing to do with anything that I replied to, which is I was recently hired to write an article, an SEO article about... I'm not sure people know what SEO means. Like uh, search engine optimization. I don't really know what it it means. So it's just search engine optimization. So it's like kind of writing articles in a particular way that Google will organically push them to the top of the list. So if you put in certain keywords, they are much more likely to be clicked on, basically. And a lot of companies... So you're manipulating people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But this was for a non-vegan, basically, you know, online outlet that nobody here has heard of, and I'm not going to mention what it is, but I was hired to write a piece about non-dairy milks. And I was like, well, I'm only going to make, I'm only going to do this if it's fully vegan. And in fact, I turned down another story because there was a possibility that like something non-vegan would be implied. So I was like, okay. Anyway, so the article went live and I clicked on it on Friday in the midst of all of the sadness for some reason. And I realized that a line had been added to it. The line not only had a typo in it, but 
it was not a line I wrote. And it was a line that implied that some people are okay with dairy. The editors coming from the perspective of some people can digest it while some people can't. But the way it was worded was like, for some people, a slice of cheese is not a problem. And I was like, well, I can't have my name on that. And um, so the funny thing is, because I wasn't communicating particularly well, because my dog had just died, somehow the way I communicated it made it sound like I couldn't have my name on it because there was a typo. (laughs) And uh, I was like, it took a few back and forths for me to be like, okay, there's a typo. I'm just telling you there's a typo. But that's not why I'm taking my name off of it. I need my name off of it because I, I would never imply that there's any reason to ever eat dairy given. Yeah, especially so, like if it said something along the lines. I mean, you read it to me and it said something along the lines that for some people, milk is no problem. As if the only problem with milk could be that you can't digest it. The only problem could be that, it, that you're lactose intolerant. As if there weren't a billion other problems with milk. Right. No, exactly. So I know that I came across as a bit of a diva, speaking of Jasmine's being the diva, but like, come on now. That's just some bullshit. It's also like, I mean, if we're going to go there with the health stuff, like what, some white people are okay with it? Because the vast majority of people of the global majority cannot eat dairy. And that's just putting the ethics aside, which I will never actually do. So anyway, it was just like a weird little problem because, it, you know, I rarely, I rarely veer off in, outside of the vegan bubble. And, and it, I just sort of have compassion for people who have to navigate non-vegan spaces. You know, speaking of, uh, of the global majority and dairy, I have a student who is, who is Chinese from China and she happened to mention about just that, you know, her mother didn't want her to stop drinking dairy because like dairy is important or something along those lines or, or, and she's from China. And I just think like the fact that, that dairy has overtaken China where so many people are lactose intolerant, where it's not part of the traditional diet. I mean, there are these huge dairies now. It's like bad for you. It's bad for you, even if you aren't lactose intolerant Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and, and it's horrible for the climate. And here we are headed in the wrong direction once again with people who don't drink dairy drinking dairy it, it's just and thinking it's good for you it's just so frustrating you know i just want to sort of take a moment to have like some appreciation because that is so frustrating both of those last two things we said were so frustrating that we took you recently to the corning museum of glass as a celebration of your your birthday and happy birthday again, by the way. Thank so you. Happy you were Thank born. you. Can't can't celebrate it too much. Yeah, it was the, and the museum was spectacular. I was shocked how good it was. Best museum ever, and it's not far from Farm Sanctuary. So for people who go to Farm Sanctuary, if you're doing like a weekend oh, yeah. of it, go. you could go to the Corning Museum of Glass. Yeah, it's like just a short drive. Corning is a nice little town, but it's kind of like not near any major city. I mean, it was over an hour for us to get there, and. It amazes me that this huge, unbelievably complex, uh, beautiful, modern museum is sitting there. Well, it was two hours for us to get there because I have highways off. I don't drive with the highways on. So it takes us a long time and we go through a lot of cool little hamlets and some awful ones too. We passed approximately like nine dollar stores. That being said, the reason I brought this up is because you were just talking about dairy. And it's, it's funny how... 
like totally mainstream it is in certain places for there to be like multiple non-dairy options. And I just happened to notice that this like cafeteria at this museum, you have your choice of like multiple different non-dairy options. Yeah, because we were standing online and we're old enough that we still like worry. Like if I get coffee, are they going to have anything other than cow's milk? And, and of course we get there and they have like four different kinds. Yeah, it was that was pretty cool. They could stand to judge up their vegan selections on the menu. Our friends who were there got peanut butter and jelly and french fries, which, you know... No, there were other vegan selections. I think they just liked peanut butter and jelly and french fries. No, the V was for vegetarian. Yeah, I know, but some of them looked vegan to me. Okay, well, in any case. I'm sure this is really interesting to people who are now all planning a trip to Corning because there's one vegan option on the menu. Well, there's you could get multiple lattes throughout the day and try different milks. That's how I roll, personally. Anyway, I think this conversation is quickly, it's evolving, and we should get to the interview, which is a lot more interesting than this conversation. Sound good? I know you're really looking forward to this. I can't wait for people to hear this interview. It's so good. Gamunu De Silva is a filmmaker and an activist who's been investigating and documenting animal rights abuses since the 80s. He has directed undercover investigations for Compassion in World Farming and Cruelty-Free International, and since 2006 has headed up the independent investigation agency Tracks Investigations, which has completed over 260 investigative film projects for 38 animal rights and animal protection organizations in 58 countries. His images have been a catalyst for social change and have changed laws minds and improved the lives of millions of animals around the globe. He will be joining Marianne right after this. This episode of Our Hen House is brought to you in part by Meow Meow Tweet. Meow Meow Tweet creates vegan personal care for everybody. Their products are always ethical, low waste, handmade, and cruelty-free. As the first brand to introduce 100% backyard compostable deodorant sticks and lip balms, their skincare, body care, and deodorants are designed to minimize plastic consumption, and they're offered at an accessible price point. Meow Meow Tweet takes a slow food approach to skincare. All formulations are artfully blended by a certified aromatherapist and herbalist. Ingredients are certified organic, they're non-GMO, and they're from strong or renewable plant populations. And they also avoid materials that harm the ecosystems of animals and people, which is what we're all about at our hen house. Products are made in small batches by hand in their California micro factory. Meow Meow Tweet is also a certified B Corp, plastic negative, and a climate neutral company. How much do we love this? Meow Meow Tweet redistributes funds to causes in the categories of social justice, animal justice, and nature. Our Hen House listeners can get 20% off at meowmeowtweet.com by using the code HENHOUSE. Again, you get 20% off at meowmeowtweet.com by using the code HENHOUSE. Welcome to our hen house, Gam. Hi, Marianne. Lovely to be here. Lovely to be here on this podcast. Yeah, well, I am so excited to hear what you have to say because 
though I haven't been that familiar with your work until kind of recently. You have been doing this for a long time. You put the rest of us to shame, at least since the 1980s, I think. Could that be right? And can you just explain how it all started, how you first became aware of what was happening to animals and decided this was going to be something that you did something about? Well, I actually grew up in Sri Lanka in the 60s, so I wasn't really a traditional animal lover as such. So I didn't have pets or didn't hanker to go and see animals in the zoo. You know, the only relationship I had with animals when I was growing up as a young child and a teenager was really eating them, the animals on my plate. And I moved to England in the 70s. And then in the 80s, when I was a teenager, I kind of had a political awakening, I would suggest, you know, and it wasn't really an, an animal issue, really, to start off with. It was, I got involved with various social justice issues. You know, I became influenced by music, should I say, punk rock. <laughs> that really changed my life, you know. There were these... As it did many people. There are so many people in this movement who were influenced by, by punk rock. Exactly. And it sounds it sounds um, a bit crass to say music changed my life, but it absolutely did. And it was the politics that went behind the music because a lot of the bands were into anti-war, anti-racist, anti-sexist and into animal rights. And I was collecting information from reading some of the sleeves on, on the vinyls, either LPs, remember. These are the days when you actually get a physical item and actually read on the back what it has to say. I remember um, <laughs> those days quite well. <laughs> and that's where, you know, it's pre-internet, so that's where you got your information from. And there were a couple of bands, and there was this one band did a song called Me Means Murder, and it actually thought about the lyrics, and I was involved in all these other social justice issues, and I thought, hang on a minute, I should... It actually brought to life what I should... A, a new way of thinking, really. And I decided then, really, to stop eating meat. Now, that was back in 1984, 83, and then got involved with the animal rights movement as such. There was lots of direct action movements in the UK, because you know, this is where I was living at the moment, and one of the direct action movements was called the Hunt Saboteurs Association, and it was a way of actually influencing or getting involved with animal rights on a very local level. And, it, yeah, it was a fabulous way to do it. So that's one aspect of it. But the other aspect is, like so many of your guests that you've had on the show, was reading Animal Liberation by Peter Singer. I was fortunate enough to um, study at college, and that was actually on my reading list of you know, Animal Liberation. And I remember having to give a debate to, as part of the class, about speciesism. And so that gave me the intellectual background of why we should be treating animals. And whereas the music and the punk rock gave me perhaps the more emotional, heartfelt issues of why I should be getting involved with animal rights. So heady days back in the 80s. Yeah, when real change seemed really possible. So you didn't just talk about it or think about it or stop eating them, which is a really great thing to do, but you went much further. So... How did you get into it? Tell us about your first investigation. How did it happen and what did you expect to come of it? And what was it like? I was very fortunate to join a film and video collective in Oxford in the UK where I live. And that gave me access to video cameras because this was 1987, 1988, when video cameras were quite new. And these were actually the days before camcorders. 
So actually having access to these equipment is quite difficult and very expensive. So I joined this collective and their motto was give voice to those unrepresented in the mainstream media. And I thought, gosh, animals absolutely haven't got a voice. And here was an opportunity to do something different in a way, because, you know, although I've been hunt saboteuring with lots of people, there weren't very many people, well, there weren't any people doing investigations into factory farms. It just wasn't heard of. It, it literally hadn't happened in, in the UK, certainly. I mean, the only investigations I were aware of was Peter in in the States doing lab investigations. So nobody had done it in the UK and nobody had done it in Europe, partly because nobody had the equipment, really. So for a period of two years, with two or three, four friends of mine, we decided to go and investigate factory farms and make a film about factory farming. And of course, we had little idea, and I've just joined this film and video collective, so I wasn't au fait with everything to do with filmmaking at the time. And we decided to go and investigate factory farms. And we'd had these ridiculously big equipment. You know, it was days before camcorders, so it was like back in the days of VHS tapes. Of course. Yeah. So we were filming on VHS tapes and we had this recorder on the on our back and then attached to a camera and really cumbersome equipment. But we actually decided to go into factory farms and do this. So we'd had a couple of people on the lookout and then a couple of us went into these farms. And I always remember the first farm I went into. I don't think anything can prepare you for when you go first go into a factory farm. This was a broiler unit, as your readers, as your listeners will probably know, broiler units are chickens that are kept for meat. You know, these are animals that within six weeks, you know, are re- they reach their slaughter weight in six weeks, whereas in the wild they'll live up to seven years or so. So yeah, I went into this broiler unit, and when you first go into a broiler unit, you go into this ante room, and you kind of see a big list of paperwork in this room. And it had something called kill charts, and it gave you how many animals had died in that in that unit per day. And that's saying, oh, you think that's quite shocking, but it's nothing compared to you when you actually open the door of the shed, and all your senses are attacked. Literally, all your senses are attacked. The first one is the smell; it's the ammonia smell. It's absolutely reeks, and I have asthma, so I have trouble breathing, and. These are the days before we used to have masks to go into farms and <laughs> protective equipment, and it absolutely yeah, reeked, and it was really hard to smell. And the noise, the noise of these places was deafening because you've got 20,000 birds and combined with these industrial fans or industrial ventilators, and it's a racket. And then finally, is your eyes, it hits your eyes, you've got a sea, a carpet of white in front of you where you've got these 20,000 birds. And then you kind of think, what should I do? And then you kind of try and focus on to becoming a filmmaker. That's why you've gone in there to document these animals. So you kind of then focus on individual animals and try and film them basically and show their lives, you know, show the reality of their lives, you know. So some of these chickens that you see will hardly be able to walk. They'll be absolutely crippled some have got terrible hock burns all the things that i'm sure your listeners are fully aware of and it's and it's shocking it's shocking but 
at the time when you're actually filming it, you're focused. You know, you are there to do a job. And it only really hits you a day or so later. And that's with most investigations, I find. You kind of, when you're doing it, you shut away those emotions. And then when you breathe, when you relax or try to relax when you get home, when you're in the bath, that's when it kind of thinks, gosh, what, what have I witnessed? That makes so much sense. I think a lot of traumatic things are like that. I've heard people say, maybe not now, but relatively recently in the UK that, oh, we don't have factory farms here. That's in the the US. And like, it seems like you were so far ahead of knowing what was really going on. Did you, like so many of us, have this idea once you found out, once you walked into that shed and saw what was happening, that all you had to do was get the information out and somehow that would change everything? Because you know everybody... Everybody in the UK loves animals. I mean, it's a nation of animal lovers. So did you think this was going to be a whole lot easier? Absolutely. And I still think, you know, I've always of the belief if people are aware, they will change. And I was absolutely convinced that it would change and it would create immediate change. But obviously change doesn't happen overnight. You know, so what we did with that film, so we spent two years Literally, because we were an unfunded organiser, an unfunded group. You know, we were grassroots as as they come. So we do animal rights stores during the day, and to collect petrol money to actually go out to, to these farms to buy VHS tapes. So we weren't getting sponsorship or paid by anybody. And after two years, we actually made a film called Meathead, which is a kind of drama documentary, and it's going back to my roots. It had a surreal drama with it accompanied by factory farming accompanied by music or bands because we wanted to kind of go to a new audience basically and you know we wanted to go to the youth audience the music audience the kind of the audience that, that we had come from really and we thought would be affected by it so we kind of got this show finally on sky in the uk when it just came out in 1990 and boy george was um he had an mtv type music show and he showed the film there, and I thought it was going to have tremendous impact, tremendous impact. But unfortunately, that's the trouble with films, and is it gets screened and then gets forgotten about. Yeah, no, I, that is extraordinary that that you pulled. I would have, if I were you, I would have thought this is it. We're going to. You were on on national television, introduced by Boy George, who was, for those of you who are listening who are a lot younger than me, was a huge, big deal. Like, how did that even happen? Like, we would be like over the moon if that happened today and you pulled that off. Yeah, but it turned out to be harder than that. I'm kind of wondering too, you were young at the time, the people you were appealing to were young. How was your family with all of this? Were they horrified or and think you were throwing your life away? Or if this isn't too personal a question, but, you know. <laughs> Classically, my dad, you know, being an Asian dad, wanted me to become an accountant. And um, <laughs> yeah, he didn't get it at all, really. He didn't get it at all that I was trying to do something different. Whereas my mother was very supportive of it. And um, my family, actually, on my mother's side, we come back from a long tradition of journalists. And my, my great-grandfather stood for Parliament in 2000, in, sorry, over 100 years ago in 1917 as part of the Cooperative Party, which was a radical movement back in, in the UK at that time. And so there was a, always been a radical streak running behind through one half of the family. So, yeah, <laughs> I think my mother was a lot more 
appreciative of it, whereas, yeah, my father didn't quite understand what this was all about, really. Yeah, (laughs) it's not surprising. It's not surprising. So you went on to make this a career. I mean, you've worked for a number of, of organizations until, and I want to get to, of course, the company you work for now is your own company. You ultimately founded your own company to do this very kind of work. But tell us a little bit about your work for other organizations and, and just kind of bring us up to date until you you founded your own company. So after making this film, Me Ted, I did a couple of more documentaries for national TV in the UK about animal rights. And these were quite early days in, you know, this is the 1990s. You know, one, one program about animal rights activists, a short form documentary, and one in early 90s about animal rights and the law, about how the animal, various animal acts have been used against animal rights activists, you know, how they were trying to stifle the voice of protest. So after doing that, and I kind of did other what we call treatments or commissions or proposals to TV programmes, you know, and they weren't getting picked up. (laughs) And so I got slightly disillusioned with it all, really. So then I decided, I saw an advert for an organisation called Compassion in World Farming, which is an animal welfare organisation. And they were setting up an investigations unit. And this was in 1998. Seven ninety-eight, and it was the first investigations unit of its type in Europe. No other organisation had done that. Obviously, Peter had done it in the states. In, but I was thinking, wow, this is quite radical for an animal welfare organisation to set up an investigations unit, and it was kind of trial and error. So I was offered this job as special projects officer, and we tried to get footage of. This is when I kind of learnt investigations are always part of a strategy for an organisation. So why did investigations on the battery cage unit? Because Compassion in World Farming were then trying to get a ban on battery cages throughout Europe and ultimately succeeded. So we got footage you know, of battery cages. We got off footage on television, but not only to television. This is what's much more important than having television was we actually got it to the legislators we went to the european commission and actually showed the legislators there what the conditions for animals are and that really set me on the path of thinking investigations shouldn't work in isolation they shouldn't just work for just a media hit they should be part of a strategic process so i did a lot you know, I was at Compassion in World Farming for seven years, and we did lots of projects on long-distance animal transport, battery cages, turkey farming, all, all types of factory farming. And then I got offered a job at an organisation called the BUAV, which is Cruelty Free International, and that was to do run their investigations unit. And BUAV did lots of investigations into animal laboratories. And that's something I hadn't really done until that stage. And I thought I'd been focusing on factory farming. And I just thought this was a new challenge that I really wanted to take up. This is an extraordinary lineage of different kinds of investigations, which I think things were probably a little easier back then to get into because they weren't quite as suspicious, but it can have been easy. What were your techniques for getting into these places and getting this footage? I mean, it's really interesting. On some parts, investigations have got a lot easier. And sometimes you're absolutely right. People, were, people weren't so suspicious because 
there weren't many people doing it. And if there aren't many people doing it, so you can get away with a lot more. So we had a lot. But you had much bigger cameras. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. You had much bigger cameras and we didn't have Google. We didn't have Google Maps. So these days I was literally just planning an investigation project out in the European country this week. And, And I was looking on Google Maps yesterday and you can see exactly where these farms are. You can see the access points. You can see where the houses are. In the old days, we'd literally go and we'll go to the public library and we'd get a what we call a telephone directory and then we'll get an address of a farm and then we'll get a map and then we'll work out the ways to actually get to this place. So it was a lot more time consuming, but people weren't really expecting that you were going to be there. So security was fairly non-existence when you go into a farm in those days. Whereas now when we go into a factory farm, we will take thermal image cameras to see if anybody's on site. We'll have infrared detector to see what alarms there are on the outside. So, you know, we try not to get caught. So we go a bit more teched up now. But in the old days, we'll just kind of visit them, as we said, out of hours, which is generally nighttime visits. But also we'd we'd also make... um, lots of little cover stories up you know we'll be saying we're agricultural students when we this especially works when we when we go abroad you know agricultural students from another country and we want to kind of see what systems are operating and i mean for one example is we went to the states to look at the broiler industry and the organization that we were working for or wanted this footage said because of the ag-gag laws and everything else, that we couldn't do our normal out-of-hours visits. So what we did then is there was two of us there, and we basically said we want to buy some broiler farms. So I was the investor, and my co-investigator was going to be working at these farms. And so we got an estate agent to literally spend seven or eight days taking us around all these broiler farms in Georgia. And that was an excuse to actually get the footage. So we'd go and find, you know, we'd go and take these footage of the broiler farms. And this is one of the first one. This was in 2010. This is when I had, this is working for tracks. But yes, this was 2010. So it's kind of thinking imaginative ways to get the footage because, yeah, we didn't want to have place somebody in the farm because we just didn't have the the time or the expense to do it. We wanted to do it in, in, in a couple of weeks, basically. <laughs> It boggles my mind how like how this all happened, because as you say, it was international. It wasn't just in the U.S. I know there was some story about um, monkeys in when you were working for Cruelty Free International, a story of infiltrating a monkey trapping facility in Mauritius. That like that sounds very daunting to me. I can't even imagine. At the time, things don't feel daunting. They feel like, okay, this is the problem or this is the issue that you want to highlight, how the hell are we going to be able to do this? So we kind of sit around and think, okay. So on this instance, we went to investigate the international trade in in monkeys for animal research. And Mauritius is one of the major countries in the world that supplies long-tail macaques to the research industry. So we were tasked to basically find, get some footage of trapping and also what they call these monkey farms in Mauritius. And so we were armed with a 10-year-old scientific research paper that gave a vague location of where these monkeys 
had existed or where these trapping had existed. And so we just plonked ourselves onto this island. And then it's, it sounds really basic. We started driving around looking for these big monkey cages and talking to people um, subtly. You know, you can't say, well, where's where the monkeys kept, <laughs> etc. <cetera. laughs> so we eventually found a monkey trap, a big cage. And so we looked for the nearest B&B or <laughs> near there and actually went, went decided to stay there and then started to talking to people. And luckily, there was a guide at this associated with this B&B who did nature trails. And so we started chatting to him on the nature trails and eventually got talking about monkeys. And he said, ah, my brother-in-law is a monkey trapper. And we thought, bingo, this is amazing. This is amazing. So for the next week, we became this guy's best friend and just and this is part of the investigations which still troubles me because you kind of betray friendships as well you know that's the bit you know when you're doing investigations on the one hand you're trying to get this footage out into the public but on the other hand you are betraying friendships that with people but to cut it long story short we made friends with this monkey trapper and it took us about two weeks to gain his trust and you know we were having parts you know we were having going out, driving him about. And I mean, the hardest part of that project was eating meat. You know, I've been a vegan since 1987. And on that, you know, as part of the investigators, you can't suddenly say, oh, I'm not going to eat meat. So we were, you know, eating with the family, etc. And and to me, to me, that was quite, you know, you chew on a bit of chicken or whatever, and it, or fish, and we went, there's some crazy things before we went monkey trapping with him. We'd actually go and sound bizarre hunting African hedgehogs, <laughs> you know, and that's and then that's to eat, etc. So we, you know, we've kind of embedded with this with with this this family, as it were. But as a result of this, he, you know, on his he decided to show us monkey trappings and how it works. So we get up in the morning. We'd put on his company outfits, you know, which were kind of suits, his monkey trapping paraphernalia, and he'd show us, he'll go to the monkey, mon- go to his traps, he'll bait the traps, and he'll show us how monkeys were ca- caught. And, yeah, it was, it hadn't been done before, <laughs> you know, but, you know, we just thought this trapping footage needs to be obtained and just show the reality of what how monkeys start their lives before they're, transported all the way to USA and to the UK to be used in animal research. Wow, that sounds harrowing in 12 different ways. I mean, yeah, it's it's harrowing, it's crazy. I mean, one incident I remember on the last night, this monkey trapper decided to hold us a party. Well, we had to pay for the party. And it was bizarre. And he said, oh, let's have a barbecue. So we, we we all met up, went to the shop, and he bought loads of the butchers, and then me and my investigator friend in, and he said, you know, we were looking around to. Get, he said, oh, you can buy some things for for the meat. So we were looking at these jars of barbecue sauce, and you know, as typical vegans, we were kind of looking at what the ingredients <laughs> the <labels. laughs> were, what the labels were, and then it kind of dawned us, this is crazy, you know, we're getting this barbecue sauce to be putting on me, you know. <laughs> and so, yeah, that night we had this rather ridiculous party where um, 
he did for us, which, yeah, it was, um, that was difficult as well. Yeah, it was. So with this kind of investigation, do you feel that ultimate, even though it has not been a process of, oh, we just have to tell everybody what's going on and then it will all end. That hasn't happened. Have you been able to see the results of kind of an incremental increasing realization and the growth of cruelty-free products and the growth of, of, of law, particularly in the EU and the UK about, about animals. Have, have you had that satisfaction of thinking this was a piece in that puzzle that built that, even though it's certainly not perfect, even now, it, now it's better than it was? Absolutely. I mean, that's why I stick with investigations. And that's why I think investigations are the probably the most powerful tool that you can have in your armory in the animal rights world because not only do they change public opinion but they also change legislation and the first example was back in the early 90s when I was working for Compassion in World Farming when we got a law on battery cages banned throughout Europe you know and that was that was a significant welfare gain but we've also had as part of tracks we've done over 260 projects. And I can say certainly say a number of those projects have led to changes in legislation, you know, and actually having banning of certain products, etc. The most perhaps impactful ones we've had is on the fur trade. We did investigations in Belgium and in France on the fur trade and specifically about fur farms. As your listeners will know, fur farms it's really hard to quantitate what's most horrific in animal welfare <laughs> status. but Yeah, no, that's a, a tough debate. Uh, but this is when you've got, these are wild animals who normally roam around foxes, mink, who roam around for hundreds of miles, and they're kept in these small cages, these wire cages. And in these wire cages, they go crazy. You know, they if they don't go crazy, they will be involved with cannibalism of other foxes and mink within those cages. Because, you know, if you've got five animals, wild animals, in a very confined space, they're going to not be happy. <laughs> you know, they're going to either go crazy and do what we call these stereotypical behaviours, or they're going to attack each other. So, to me, the fur trade is perhaps one of the lowest of the lowest types of animal farming that you can have. But... So going back to your point about legislation, so we had, we've done investigations in Belgium in 2014 and 2016, where we visited 17 every fur farm in Belgium, not just on the first time, but on our second visit. And then, you know, we get this amazing news that Belgium bans fur farms. And we had a very similar experience in France. You know, we investigated that in 2017, 2018, 2020. You know, and last year, France announced they're going to have a ban on fur farms. And you've also seen Italy now have just announced it. So it's kind of a snowball effect, really, that doing investigations changes legislation. And one of the secrets of that is we always work at tracks with good NGOs that that can actually do something with the material that we gain. I think that's really important to actually don't don't do investigations in isolation. So I'm I think I learned from my early days of when you make a film it might get forgotten about there's so much more to investigations than being um a picture etc or a, 
an Instagram like, etc., or um, on a gallery, I think it really has to be, in my eyes, it has to have a legislative purpose as well, you know, because that's where real change happens. Right, exactly. And having the experts on that end, you have the expertise on the gathering the information end, but they have the expertise in dealing with legislatures. And so let's take a step back because these this investigation was through tracks. You decided to open this organization and tell us a little bit about how it functions and, and why you decided that was the direction you would go instead of working for, say, you know, large organizations as you had in the past. Well, we set up tracks in 2006, so that's 16 years ago now. And I said we've done 260 projects in for 38 NGOs around the globe. And the reason for it, on a personal level, I got fairly frustrated working within a major animal rights organisation. I didn't like management. <laughs> I didn't like being a senior director. Or I didn't like having to do lots of vision, mission, value meetings. <laughs> and work with branders and once you reach a certain level within an organization I think you get so removed from why you actually join the organization and to me investigations is what I've always passionately believed about I like solving a problem basically so put an investigation in front of me I like assembling a team that can do it and actually working out how you're going to be doing this type of investigation and why we set tracks up is previously I'd worked either in factory farming or not compassion in world farming or animal experimentation at Cruelty Free International. But there's so many issues you want to work on. You're so you, know, you want to work on food, fashion, entertainment, companionship, research. I wanted to do it all basically. And I thought, actually, let's not specialize and in one one or put all eggs in one basket let's actually try and support groups to actually around the globe and support smaller groups but also the large organizations as well so you know we kind of see ourselves as service providers because we do the investigations and then let these organizations just run with the material run it for their campaigns run it for their lobbying legislative ages run it for their fundraising efforts or whatever so yeah, we're very happy for the organisations to kind of take the credit and run with it. So that's probably why you haven't heard of Tracks, because until two years ago, we didn't really have a website or anything. We kind of just kept under the radar. But in lockdown, like lots of other things, our work was stopped. So I kind of got a bit bored and decided to kind of tell the world a bit about <laughs> what we were doing. It sounds like an excellent plan. I mean, the whole the whole way of setting it up that way because it is such an area of particular expertise and it requires a certain kind of person who I imagine is not that easy to find necessarily for like if an organization just wanted to do investigations themselves. What is it that makes for a good undercover investigator? There's so many different things that you need to be investigator. And I should say at Tracks we have about 10, 12 investigators working at Tracks. And they all have slightly different skills and attributes. You know, some people we've had come from the ex-military, some people have been ex-police forces, and some are traditional animal rights activists, as you were. And I think the main attribute, attribute is to remain calm, is to remain calm, to remain focused, and to actually get damn good visuals. It's actually, actually good 
with the equipment, with, with a, a normal camera or a hidden camera. So we kind of have special, different types of specialists involved with, within our investigation team. So I can't really pinpoint what's what's actually makes it absolutely special. It's a determination, really. I think that's the ultimate thing, is we're determined when we work for an organisation or work for a client to actually come back with results so they can actually get some meaningful change. It's that absolute desire to produce results or get results. Well, it takes a very particular personality. I'm not sure what what the attributes are either, but it also, like you seem like a relatively cheery person, I have to say. A lot of people talk about PTSD when they talk about this kind of work and how you can only do it for a certain amount of time and it just overwhelms you. How do you maintain the drive? How do you, how do you maintain the ability to keep facing this and, and going back and getting more and staying sane? I think because I have been involved in investigation since 35 years, I think 1988 is when I went into my first factory farm. And, you know, and, and each time I go into a farm, I really dread it. I mean, it's not something I look forward to. It's like, oh, we've got to do another factory farm. It's never like that. It's actually, this is not something I want to be doing. But the important thing is when you actually get these images is to actually think they're not yours to keep. You can't keep them inside my head, really. I need to get these images out there. And it's kind of, on one hand, it's kind of a duty of to actually work with people to actually get those images out there. And if change happens and if you create change, whether it be legislative or in some cases when we have animals freed from certain captivity aspects, it's actually a real buzz. You know, you've actually changed the lives of millions of animals. That gives you a shot in the arm, really. That's like, wow, this is actually really, really powerful. The other reason I think I keep saying is I don't really exist in this animal rights bubble. And it's perhaps only in the last two years when I've been engaging more with social media, which is something I have a real love-hate, mostly hate relationship with, is that, you know, I have a life outside animal rights. I do things I saw a lot of people doing. I've been doing meditation and yoga for over 10 years. I play soccer every week. <laughs> you know, most of my friends aren't vegan. Most of my friends, you know, you know, I have a different a life away from animal rights. So I don't, I'm not immersed 24-7 in the animal rights world, really. And I think that it's helped me, certainly, because it means I can focus when I'm on my investigation. So I don't have to be talking about animal rights all the time. And I think, for me personally, that keeps me sane. And that's kept me sane for the last 35 years. Yeah, you have a lot of reasons to have not been sane. So <laughs> so it, whatever you're doing seems to be working. But like you have a lot of friends who aren't vegan, and yet you have you are the person who has seen it all. Are are you frequently tempted to to like just take them and shake them and and say you have to change or no. or do you really let it go? I really do let it go because I'm I'm quite fortunate because I know my work can get out there to other, you know, through the organisations and they can reach people. I don't feel I have to have a, have a personal crusade to actually change people. I don't feel like I have to have a need to say. The reality is a lot of my friends until two years ago didn't really know what I did. <laughs> you know, they said, oh, game, he does, he does something with filmmaking, he does something with animals. But I never really describe at all what, my work is and 
it's interesting, you know, even my soccer pals, they listen to a podcast and they say, my God, I didn't know that you did this, <laughs> you know, and it was, yeah, so in a way it's been quite hidden from even my friends and my acquaintances, what I do. So I, I don't make a big point of spreading that animal's right message personally myself. But in a way, that's keeping myself sane. It's actually having a life away from that. So it's, Yeah, it really is. Being able to, when you're doing so much and, and your whole life is devoted to it, and yet still being able to compartmentalize, I think it's it's extremely valuable and, and, and really allows you to be better at what you do. And I think uh, people make have, their own choices. I mean, I was just thinking, if somebody told me what to do, I wouldn't do it. And I think a lot yeah, of people are like that. Yeah, so. I think almost everybody's like that. <laughs> I'm always struck by how many people focus so much energy on converting their families to veganism. I mean, nobody listens to you, but if there's one group of people who never listen to you, it's your family. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. If your family tell you what to do, you do the exact opposite. But if they come to their own decisions and if they kind of, I think if you make them aware through the work and I, I, I've seen change happen. So that's why I, if I was just banging my head against a brick wall all the time, I get disheartened. But I've seen change happen in the last 35 years. Gosh, have I seen change happen? You know, you know, you look at, the, you know, I go into the supermarkets now. 35 years ago, you'd, as a vegan, you'd, <laughs> you'd struggle. You wouldn't even think about going out to dinner. You know, you wouldn't even think about going out to a restaurant or if you did, yeah, it'd be very limited. Whereas now I can go anywhere. You know, I can eat anything. Yeah, I've seen a sea change happens. So that keeps me sane. You know, that's going back to your question. It's what keeps you sane. It's like progress. So far, the progress, which has been extraordinary, I agree, but it hasn't reached the animals as much as it's reached vegans. <laughs> like it's like vegans' lives are so much better, but animals are still suffering at, you know, just, just staggering numbers. But do you, do you see that changing in the future i bet you do because you are a hopeful person yeah i am an optimist and yeah i i, I, t I fully take on your point that as vegans it's great now <laughs> <laughs> and that we can get oat milk wherever at your local shop etc but yeah i am an optimist i think it will change it will change and it's i am also here for the long run you know i've been here 35 years doing this and i've seen the last three or four years a massive change and if that change accelerates i would hopefully see a, ch a better change for animals and yeah it's not going to be there it's not going to be overnight but i think i am an optimist marianne <laughs> i am an optimist no I, I mean i hear you i'm not that much of an optimist but i really try to fake being one <laughs> <laughs> and i do feel that it's very possible we're, we're on the cusp so that's a very hopeful way to end this interview, which I hate to do because this has been just a delight. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you ever so much for having me. And it's like, it's actually like therapy talking about these investigations because I don't often get the chance to actually talk about investigations and talk about the work of tracks. And yeah. Well, you I, should be talking about it more. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our hen house will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Anxieties are rising. Our first story is from our favorite correspondent, Hannah thompson Weeman, who writes the Animal Ag Watch column at meetingplace.com. And I have big news about Hannah thompson Weeman. She's currently the vice president of communications for the Animal Agriculture Alliance, and apparently she's going to be the new president. So apparently her style of, of, well, we'll talk about her style in a moment. Apparently it's very successful within that organization, i.e. I, she doesn't like you. <laughs> I can guarantee that. Latest business benchmark report makes true intentions clear. And she's talking about this thing called the business benchmark on farm animal welfare. And as she points out, it is produced by two animal rights extremist organizations, Compassion in World Farming and Four Paws. Uh, hardly animal rights extremist organizations, but I guess in Hannah's world they are. So this report, she says, ranks restaurant, retail, and food service brands into various tiers based on an assessment of their animal welfare policies. So that's very useful. Now we'll go for the retailers. And she's really pretty horrified by it because, quote, while the report is represented as animal welfare focused, you don't have to read all 69 pages of it to see the true end game. This year's forward states that Compassion and World Farming and Four Paws want to, quote, end factory farming and change the food system in a sustainable way, unquote, through three strategies, quote, a significant reduction in the number of animals raised for food at least 50% reduction globally. The, the emphasis was actually in the original. I tried to demonstrate the emphasis by saying it loud. <laughs> Making sure that animals raised for food experience, quote, positive animal welfare states, and quote, replacing animal-based products with plant-based alternatives. Ha, she saw through their, their subterfuge, and really they want to reduce the number of, well, they don't want to just reduce it according to her. According to her, their true objective is ending animal agriculture and taking meat, poultry, dairy, and eggs off of their shelves and menus. I don't actually know. I mean, I don't think they're vegan organizations, but, you know, maybe they're seeing vegan organizations. Maybe Hannah knows that. She's really, uh, you know, concerned that these retailers will fall for this. And she wants to make sure if they are, that they will, uh, if they're feeling any pressure, that they would instead look to their suppliers as key partners in any animal welfare conversations along with the alliance and our members. Yeah, that'll get you far. That'll really help. From our perspective, she points out, animal welfare decisions are much too important to be made in response to activist campaigns and influenced by groups with a different agenda entirely. Their different agenda actually, you know, being animal welfare. <laughs> Oh, God, Hannah, Hannah, Hannah. Our next story is from the Bladen Journal. This is from a town in North Carolina. Someone needs to horse collar the PETA execs. This is an interesting column because it's a typical anti-PETA. 
PETA lit somebody's fire, and he's all upset about it. It's from the editorial board. And according to them, the officials with People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, or PETA, have finally lost their minds. Last week, PETA stated in a news release the NFL should change the name of the horse collar tackle penalty, which the animal rights organization said makes light of using tight harnesses to exploit horses for labor. Horse hockey. Right, this is a typical PETA. I mean, they do this all the time. They find some some, you know, animal offensive language and and put out a press release and and try to get somebody's goat. Well, you should excuse the expression. <laughs> That'll be after me next. Apparently they have succeeded in doing so here. Uh, according to Ingrid Newkirk in the news release, words matter and the term horse collar tackle trivializes an old style contraption that exploits horses for labor. I try to keep animal exploitative uh, comments out of my language in spite of my uh, gaffe two seconds ago. It's a, apparently a way to get pressed because these people are pretty easy to annoy. Yes, words have meaning, as Newkirk said, but does a horse know that meaning? Boy, they really fell for this one. But here's the reason I'm I'm highlighting it, because it's this is actually not rising anxieties. This is so interesting. This is a paragraph from, from this article. Pete has, since its inception back in 1980, done some really good things. It has achieved a litany of animal rights reforms, convincing some of the world's largest fashion brands not to use fur, animal testing bans by thousands of personal care companies, ending the use of animals in automobile crash tests, closing the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus, and more. Well, apparently, they think those are all good things, which I think is pretty amazing. That's why I wanted to tell you about that article. All right, finally. This is from meetingplace.com. Sound bites or sound science? This is from the Food Safe and Sound column by Mindy Brashears. I feel like every week there is a new food safety and rising anxieties article. Really is what they're worried about more than, I think, more than us. Uh, It has been said, she points out, what is old is new again. Has that been said? I don't know. Pre-harvest, this is an unbelievable expression. Pre-harvest food safety seems new again but it's far from a new concept. For those who may be new to this term, I'm certainly new to it, pre-harvest references food safety on the farm, in the live animal, or at any point before harvest in respect to meat and poultry safety. Okay, so apparently pre-harvest is their word for life. (laughs) Uh, Like, I guess you're pre-death, you know, until until you're not. Pre-harvest. That's that's what they how they refer to an animal's life. I'd like to see them pull this off. I actually love this article in a lot of ways because there is no way they want to do this. She does point out that FSIS, the Food Safety Inspection Service, which she thinks is starting to focus on pre-harvest food safety. She says it has no authority on the farm, but could implement strategies that incentivize mitigation at pre-harvest. Yeah, I'd like to see them try to do that. I'd like to see the I mean, the industry really is not going to like this. She doesn't really have a whole lot of ideas, so I can't really repeat them. But one of her main ones is doing something about salmonella. The most successful strategies are salmonella vaccinations for poultry and probiotics for cattle. Now, I don't know, but my my thought is that I do think that they do do this in, in other places. But the idea that they're going to inoculate every chicken for salmonella, is that what she's talking about? She says vaccinations. I don't know. So we shall see. And and she does point out that as with any mitigation strategy, there must be a mechanism to monitor. 
So maybe she wants to get inspections on the farm. I just love this idea. Good for you, Mindy. You're going to make everybody nuts. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and if you're able, we invite you to join the flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another way to support us is to leave us a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast, and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Vicki Bichler for her membership and administrative help. We'd also like to give a shout out to the amazing Veronica Kalinska, who designed our brand new logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode, so don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for tuning in. Listener.